Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cross the Crown podcast, episode 56. I'm Doug Gooden. Thanks for joining me. Today, we are talking about how big the church is going to get. Also, eating and sleeping for maximum effectiveness. And finally, elder qualifications, including how we should think about beer and money. So grab your Bible and a cup of coffee and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. All right, so we're going to jump right into the theology portion of episode 56, and we're going to look at another Old Testament prophecy that spoke of the coming of Jesus and what that means for us today. Uh, If you've been with us the last few weeks around the Christmas New Year time, we looked at Isaiah 9, for example, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the kingdom will be on his shoulders, there'll be no... Uh, end to the increase of his kingdom and of peace. And we talked about what that means for us today. And uh, I want to continue looking at uh, some uh, Old Testament prophecies and how it uh, points toward the coming of the kingdom that we are now living in. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open to Daniel chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bible, then I will read it for you. Uh, You may recall the beginning of Daniel, uh, where in chapter 2, uh, this uh, this prophet of God who is in a foreign land and he's serving a, a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he has a, a Herculean task before him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had this uh, frightening vision or dream, and he has called together all of his wise men and uh, those who would normally interpret his visions for him. And he said, uh, I want you to tell me what my dream means. And that was apparently a fairly common practice for, for them. But this time he set it up. He was so disturbed by this vision that he set it up differently than ever before. He said, I want to test and see if you guys really are um, uh, interpreting things according. It has, has the, have the gods really given you this ability to interpret things? So in order to prove that you are giving me an accurate interpretation, I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. You have to tell me what I dreamed. Let the gods that you that you talk to, let them reveal to you the dream I had and what it means. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. That was a pretty, pretty rough time to be a prophet seer kind of person. Well, Daniel's there. He knows the one true God, and he is given both the dream itself and the interpretation uh, to share with Nebuchadnezzar. And here is... Uh, Here's what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, verse 31 and following. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of, of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, that is a stone without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, 
and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so that's the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw. This huge statue with his head of gold and, and different uh, metals and, and materials all the way down to the bottom. And then this, this stone coming out of nowhere and crushing it. And that stone becomes this huge mountain that fills the whole earth. So Nebuchadnezzar is curious as to what this means. And Daniel is able to give him the interpretation. And here's what he said. Uh, this is in verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whoever, uh, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So that was great news for Nebuchadnezzar. You're this head of gold, and God has given you power and authority over all the other nations of the earth. You see how, incidentally, um, Nebuchadnezzar, even as a pagan, a heathen king, is a type, a foreshadowing of Christ, the one who would ultimately be the king of all kings and rule over all. Anyway, so that's what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. Then in verse 39, he says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, and some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So uh, here he says, after you, you're the head of gold. After you, there will be three more kingdoms. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We know what those three kingdoms were. After Babylon, the kingdom that came to destroy Babylon were the Medes and Persians. So that would be the, the chest of, of silver. The Medes and Persians uh, ruled for a while, and then the Greeks came, Alexander the Great and so on. They conquered all the known lands, but then the Greek kingdom was overcome by the Roman Empire, the Caesars and those who preceded them. So you've got these four kingdoms that are the statue, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and that's what he saw. And this is going to happen over the next you know, several hundred years in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's time. Here's where it gets real for us. In the days of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. What Daniel saw there was this rock that would crush the other kingdoms and become a mountain that fills the earth. 
That is God's kingdom. Jesus came 2,020 years ago to set up God's kingdom, and he is in the process of crushing all of the other kingdoms of the earth. He is destroying all of his enemies. Remember, we've talked about this. Psalm 110 predicted that, that Jesus would sit at the right hand of the Father until the Father takes all of Jesus's enemies and makes them a footstool for his feet. And the New Testament writers bring that psalm forward and apply it to Jesus and tell us that after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is crushing his enemies. He has already taken the strength away from Satan so that Satan is being over, overruled and, and his, his kingdom is being uh, destroyed day by day, week by week, year by year. That's what Jesus is doing. He is conquering the kingdom of darkness. This is the kind of imagery that Paul uses, for instance, in Colossians when he says, you Christians, you Colossian Christians in the first century even, were taken out of and rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus, to God's glorious son, to the kingdom of light. And he goes on to talk about how, uh, how Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and everything exists for him and everyone should uh, do all that they do to give him first place. That's the repeated and recurring theme of the New Testament. Uh, Romans 8 talks about how Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He's the, 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 the heir of all things, the heir of the father who receives the entire universe as his inheritance. And now he's calling out his sons and building his kingdom and taking his inheritance. You remember in Acts chapter two or uh, Psalms chapter two, where uh, there in that Psalm, uh, the the Son, the Messiah, uh, God says, "Ask of me for the nations, and I will give you all the nations as your inheritance." Well, Jesus, the Son of God, asked, and the Father has given him all of the nations as his inheritance. So the question is, how big is Jesus's kingdom going to be? I said this last week, I want to reiterate it. I think we bring a very pessimistic outlook on the growth of the church and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We, we somehow have a, um, uh, just a general pessimistic view of the impact of the gospel. I was having this conversation with a couple of pastor friends yesterday, and, uh, and we were discussing why is it that we default to... A, a view that says, yeah, you know, there's going to be a few, there's going to be a remnant of believers in the world, but the vast majority of people on planet earth until Jesus comes back are going to reject the gospel. Is that the biblical testimony? Is that what this image would convey? That this rock is going to become a mountain that crushes all other kingdoms and fills the entire earth? And think about all the prophecies, all the, the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the, the, the glory of the Lord filling the earth. Uh, Isaiah 2 says that all the nations will stream to Zion. Well, we now know who or what that Zion is. That's Jesus. And the nations streaming to Mount Zion are the nations streaming 
to Jesus Christ and submitting to him as king and, and, and calling out to him for salvation. Uh, this gets me excited as we enter this new year, the new year of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I anticipate great success in building Jesus' kingdom. Uh, how does he do it? How has he for 2,000 years been building his kingdom? Well, again, it's the Great Commission. Uh, remember Matthew uh, 28, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of every nation on planet earth. And that's been happening for 2,000 years, and it's going to continue as his kingdom grows. And it starts with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so let me ask you a question. Think about your neighborhood or your apartment complex, uh, your dorm, wherever you happen to live at the moment, and assuming that there are people around, what percentage of those people are Christians? Now, let me, uh, I'm going to talk to those especially who don't live in a, in a uh, Christian community, maybe a Christian college, but for the rest of you who live in a neighborhood, uh, uh, like I said, an apartment building or something, what percentage of those people around you are, are really devoted to Jesus Christ? I don't mean you know sort of nominal Christians, uh, Easter and Christmas Christians, or traditional American Christians, but they really believe the gospel and serve Jesus as king. Now, think in your mind of those that you know uh, near you that, uh, that are true believers, now think about how different your neighborhood or your apartment building would be if 90% of them were, were Christians. There would be a lot, of, a lot of change, wouldn't there? Now imagine your community. I live in Colorado Springs. It's not a huge city, uh, although the projections are that within 30 years, we're going to be the biggest city in Colorado, uh, outpacing Denver. But right now, we're 500,000, give or take, and then the greater county is 700,000, give or take. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but something along those lines. Imagine if 90% of Colorado Springs became Christians. Think about what that would do for culture, for society. Uh, think about how crime would be way, way down. Uh, think about how every industry here, every, every workplace, every neighborhood, every park, uh, every entertainment venue, think about how, how awesome it would be to live in a community where so many people love Jesus. Man, the quality of work that would be done in every enterprise would go up because everybody would be doing it to please Jesus and to bless others. Uh, again, there, there would be much less need of police force and that kind of thing. And the joy that would that would fill every occasion, every every gathering, our, our, our church buildings would uh, we we'd be planting churches like crazy to keep up with all of the the people that want to come for worship and that kind of thing. I don't know what the percentage is, and I haven't I haven't figured out how all this plays out uh, at the end. I know everybody wants to jump to eschatology and the and the last days, the final days, the the return of Christ. Everybody wants to go there when this discussion is being had. But I want to encourage you not to jump right there and just think about today. This is another passage like the ones we've been looking at in recent weeks. Another passage where the kingdom of God, which we now know is the kingdom of Jesus, is going to grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. It's similar to the metaphors Jesus gave. 
that uh, this, this thing will start as a mustard seed and will become a huge tree. Uh, this will start as just a little bit of leaven and it will impact and spread through the entire loaf, the entire world. So, so set aside all your questions about the end for a moment and just take at face value these prophecies, these predictions that when the Messiah comes, he's going to start building his kingdom and that kingdom will grow and grow and grow and grow. There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of peace. And the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. And this mountain is going to be so big, it fills the earth. And the Great Commission tells us to go make disciples everywhere. Think about the impact that you can have this week in building the kingdom of Jesus. First and foremost, our goal is to call sinners to repentance. That's the baptizing of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. So we want to see new converts. We want to see new people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that requires us to proclaim the gospel, the death and resurrection, the cross of Jesus Christ. And once they come, then we start teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. As people obey everything Jesus commanded, they are going to be morally better people. Husbands are going to love their wives. Husbands are going to lead their wives and not abdicate the responsibilities. Uh, husbands are going to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As wives grow in obedience to Jesus, they're going to submit to their husbands. And the two of them together are going to be one flesh. That means great sexuality. That means the two of them together are leading their families. That means the two of them together are are uh, subduing this earth, whatever gardens the man has been placed in, they're going to grow and prosper in those things. They're going to raise up children to continue this and future generations of those who will serve Christ. Uh, whatever uh, the man is called to do at work and the woman as well, whatever she's doing, whether it's outside the home vocation or other things in the home, the, you know, the Proverbs 31 idea for the wife, uh, whatever men and women are doing, they're, as they grow in their obedience to Christ, they're going to be better at their jobs. Uh, they're going to be more, more faithful, and they're going to be better stewards of their money and better stewards of their time. And they're going to encourage others and build relationships, and they're going to, they're going to edify other believers and build one another up. That's what we are called to do. And all of that is going to result in communities that are thriving as Christians are more obedient to Jesus. And that's what the scripture says is going to happen. And it has, if you look back over the last 2000 years, it's easy to look at all the negative, all the failure, all the sin, but don't miss all the good things, all the righteousness. Don't miss how many more Christians there are today than there ever have been in history. Genuine Christians. And the impact that Christianity is having on the culture. I know here in America, it seems like we were losing. And I would say we have lost ground. There's no question about it. Uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s and the, the, the precursors leading up to that sent us in a downward uh, tailspin. But that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. If we as the church continue to build and grow and obey and bring the gospel into our, into our neighborhoods and our businesses and, and make disciples, 
we can turn this thing around and see the glory of Jesus Christ expanding in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our communities, and in our nation, and ultimately the world. That's what God said he would do. Jesus is building his kingdom, he's building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how do we do that? That's a massive, massive um, and optimistic outlook. How do we do this? Well, that leads into the next two segments and why I'm doing this. I'm convinced that for us to turn things around and take uh, more of the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of God's son, we have to have strong, better, more Christ-like men, and we have to have stronger, better, more Christ-like elders in the church. And so we're going to continue now to talk about those two arenas. All right, so as we come to the Kings section of episode 56, I want to build on what we started last week. If you're newer to this, uh, we are trying to build kingly men. As rulers of this earth, we men are kings. And, uh, and I have uh, uh, kind of summarized the, the strategy, if you will, uh, under uh, four concentric circles, four manhood circles or king circles. Uh, we've got to build the man. That's, that's you and me as individual men. We've got to build the man and then build the house. That's our family and household. Then build the church and then build the world. All four of those are areas for which we as men are responsible. And we're starting 2020 here talking about the outer man, building the outer man, the, the body. Not because the body is most important of, of all of these for sure, uh, but because it's, uh, it's so crucial to how we, uh, we, we, we build other things. The self-discipline involved and, and our bodies, as I said last week, our bodies are how we connect with the, the rest of the world. And so we have to give enough attention to our body that we are uh, uh, able to connect well and interact with the world. So we started last week uh, talking about resistance training, lifting weights. And uh, I, I recommended to you, if you haven't done this before, to start out with the, uh, the five by five strong lifts. And some of you have reached out uh, to me about that and asked some questions. And I sent you uh, the links uh, in the show notes to that. And then uh, a, f- a few of you have uh, taken me up on my offer to give you a free book if you will work out hard uh, all of January. If, you're, if, that, if you don't know what that was, if you missed that, then go back and listen to episode 55 and you'll get the details on how you can get a free book just by lifting weights in the month of January. Well, today I want to talk about two other important factors uh, for the outer man. And the first one is sleep. Uh, sleep is crucial for, uh, for effectiveness in life. Um, we need to sleep well. We need to sleep better. We need to give due priority to sleep. Now, those of you who know me well might think I'm being a little bit hypocritical here. Uh, I am, by some people's accounts, the worst sleeper you've ever known. That's not necessarily by choice. I just uh, I don't need as much sleep apparently as a lot of people do, and so I find myself up uh, too often. It seems uh, between two thirty and five thirty, and once I'm uh, awake, then I'm awake, and so I get up and get busy and get after it and get stuff done. Um, but that's that's not by choice, and it's not because I devalue sleep. 
And what typically happens is after a few days of uh, getting uh, fewer hours of sleep than normal, then I will sleep for seven hours, and uh, and that's a great refreshing. The, the point is, for me, for my body, I'm able to, to get stuff done on, uh, on less sleep than some people need. But again, I understand and I appreciate the value of sleep, and I, I sleep as much as my body will let me because I think it's, uh, it's important. Uh, to, to, to give our body rest. Uh, sleep is crucial for brain function. We all know this. We know how when we're groggy, when we've had too many nights of not sleeping well, or even one night sometimes, uh, we just aren't able to focus as well, to read and study and think and meditate as well, those kind of things. Uh, sleep is crucial for energy. You know how it is uh, when when you you jump out of bed and you feel rested and you had a good night's sleep and and you just think I can go and go and go and go and go today and then other days when you didn't sleep well you tossed and turned you woke up many times you're just you're, you're you struggle to find that same energy uh, and self control uh, we all know the temptation we have as men to control our tongue to control our thoughts. Uh, to control or to focus on what we need to when we're when we're sleepy, it's harder. Uh, many men struggle uh, with lust and and a, a temptation toward pornography and being angry and all those things when they lack sleep. Well, if that's true of you, then the solution is make sleep a priority. You want to stop sinning because of because uh, you're tired, then go to bed earlier and 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 sleep better. Uh, it's good for all of us. Uh, you'll be more productive. You'll be more efficient. Uh, coffee is great. Uh, I drink a lot of coffee, and uh, and I encourage you to drink coffee. Um, but it's not a substitute for sleep. You don't want chemicals driving you. You want uh, you want your body through the normal processes God has given us. You want your body to uh, to have enough rest. Uh, by the way, I'm getting to the age now where I I have done some experimentation and, and tested at what point um, if I have coffee you know, too late in the afternoon, at what point does that impact my sleep? And I've, I've realized that by and large, I need to cut it off at noon, uh, maybe one o'clock, and, uh, and that I tend to sleep better if I don't have caffeine after that. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, she has the gift of sleep. She can uh, drink a whole pot of coffee at 10 o'clock at night and go to bed and sleep all through the night, and then some. Uh, I don't have that gift, so I have to, uh, have to be careful of it. Also, in terms of your lifting the weights that we, we, we started last week, uh, as I understand it, sleep is when the muscles are built. So you, you tear down the fibers of your muscles as you lift weights, and then you need to eat properly. And then when you go to sleep that night, that's when your body does most of its building of those muscles. At least that's what I've, what I've understood, I've studied and, and learned. Uh, if that's true, then it makes sleep in terms of trying to build muscle uh, all that more important. Uh, so get as much sleep as you as you need, as you can, make it a priority, go to bed. You know, a lot of people just are not self-disciplined to go to bed on time. For most of us, now, you know, my younger years, I got a lot done when I was, uh, I got a lot done late at night. But as I've gotten older, especially after having kids, uh, kids will make a morning person out of you. You, you don't have any choice. You, 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 your days of sleeping in are over after you have children. And uh, what I've learned now is I'm at my best in the morning, and at night, it's much harder to focus. So it's, I'm not getting good quality things done late at night. Uh, so make it a priority to go to bed at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and that way you can get up earlier in the morning and get after it. So sleep is important. Make sure that you uh, pursue whatever you need to be as effective as you can for God's kingdom. Closely related to that is nutrition. Uh, 
I've done a lot of study and research on tradi- uh, nutrition in the last uh, couple of years, and uh, I, I want to qualify this and say I'm not an expert. I will tell you in my study and research, what I have found is there are a whole lot of experts in the world who have contradictory opinions on nutrition, and we do have a culture that, uh, that I think elevates the expert too high. And certainly experts in every field of study have proven that they're not trustworthy. Now, that, I, I, what I'm saying is I, I don't mean every, every person who studies something is, uh, is not trustworthy. I hope I'm trustworthy in preaching and teaching the scripture and, and explaining it because that's, uh, that's what I've spent the last 25 years of my life doing. And uh, I strive to be trustworthy. So there are faithful, uh, there, there are some who are dedicated to their, their field of study and, uh, and they are worth learning from. But there's a lot of people in every field of study that, uh, that should not be listened to. And that is certainly true in nutrition and diet. So I am not an expert. Let me say that up front. But there's plenty of information out there to be read and be careful not to just assume that someone who claims to be an expert is an expert. So I'm just going to share with you what I have learned uh, and you need to research it for yourself. But I have, uh, I will tell you the result of my study is increased, uh, I feel better and, and I'm healthier because of uh, implementing what I have learned. Uh, so for me, what, what I had to learn, especially when I got serious about lifting weights, was protein is crucial. Uh, maybe you know that, maybe you don't. I didn't know it. I didn't. I didn't. I'm sure people told me, but it didn't register uh, until the last few years of just how important. So I eat 180 to 200 grams of protein every day. Uh, that is absolutely crucial for me for building muscle, and I feel better. Um, and uh, I I do low carb. Uh, I don't I don't follow a strict keto kind of diet or whatever. I just uh, I don't eat breads. Uh, I eat uh, very few grains. Uh, I'll eat uh, lots of vegetables. And get carbohydrates that way, uh, but for me, both in uh, in losing fat and in just how I feel, uh, high protein, healthy fat, low carb is where I'm at uh, maximum effectiveness. So you need to research it and figure out for you what's best. But for me, that's that's where I need to be. Um, you got to track calories. Uh, it, it, we are. Sh- I was shocked to learn how how many calories are in things like sauces, you know, ketchup and uh, uh, salad dressing, and um, uh, just those things that you put a little on, put a little on, and next thing you know, you've added three or four hundred calories easy to to your meal. And you know, weight loss is largely calories in, calories out. Uh, it's not quite that simple, but uh, that's a good place to start. Anyway, um, if you're serious about getting healthy, you need to be tracking your calories uh, and getting rid of sugar. I have almost uh, entirely eliminated sugar except for uh, when I choose to eat a dessert now and then, which is not very often, not even once a week. And oh man, sugar is, a, is like a drug and it's a highly addictive and it's in so much of our food. And it just, it, for me at least, it makes me feel worse. I have tested this very thoroughly and I feel worse after I eat sugar. In fact, my wife and I were just commenting. You know, we just came off of a pretty pretty heavy week. So for us, we've got Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And then my son's birthday is a few days later. And then New Year's Eve. And then New Year's Day. 
and throw in there, we had uh, uh, a, a girl who's very dear to us get married, and we had her rehearsal dinner Friday night uh, last week, and then uh, the wedding on Saturday. So you can imagine what the the food temptations were: Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, rehearsal dinner, wedding, birthday, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and I did not stick strictly to my diet for that entire period of time. I did work out. I worked out without fail and, and did some extra cardio. But my wife and I were both just recounting, we felt like crap after several days of eating like that. And now that I've been back on the, the strict uh, uh, eating lifestyle that I was describing earlier, I feel great. I feel great. And I slept great last night for the first time in a week. And there's just some correlation there, I'm convinced, between my eating. Uh, for me, eating carbohydrates and sugar uh, impacts my sleep. And so as I've eliminated those or reduced them considerably, my sleep has gotten a lot better. Uh, last thing I'm going to say about nutrition here is um, if you haven't watched like the fat documentary that's on Amazon Prime, I highly encourage you to do it. Uh, there is a, a contingent of people on social media who are exposing how the American dietary uh, instruction that we've been given for decades now that is driven by the government, uh, that they've been deceiving us. Uh have you heard, I'm sure you've heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the, of the day. Do you know where that came from? I bet you don't. It came from a woman who was a Seventh-day Adventist back uh, over 100 years ago, and she was convinced that uh, testosterone and... Uh, te- so, te- so testosterone in men is directly affected by our diet. And we need red meat, we need protein for testosterone, and sugar and carbohydrates and things can actually diminish our testosterone. Uh, Well, she figured this out years ago, a century ago, and uh, she was convinced that male aggression and masturbation were driven by uh, too much testosterone because of eating red meat. So she was on a a crusade to remove that from our, our diet. And one of her colleagues was a guy named Kellogg. Maybe you've heard of Kellogg's cereal. Uh, And Graham of Graham Cracker fame. Uh, And these folks grew grains and started marketing them. And now, of course, cereal, grains, that spills over into seed oils and vegetable oils and all of these these things that are are commonplace, that that make up the predominant diet for the average American today. Uh, All of this is driven by ideology from the Seventh-day Adventists who were trying to get us to stop eating so much meat. And somewhere along the line, they began to influence the uh, uh, the American. I forget how what it's called. The, not the American Dietary Association, but some, whatever whatever that group is that controls you know the food pyramid and all the the books that we learn that we read in schools that tell us what we're supposed to eat and the, the six um, what is it six uh, six portions of grains every day and uh, less dairy and very little meat and all that, and, and that red meat is bad for you and cholesterol, all of that stuff, the, the eating um, fake butter instead of real butter and eliminating eggs, all that stuff, that's all, it's all based on this ideology. And there are study after, there's study after study that shows that as um, our increased grain and carbohydrate and vegetarian uh, 
uh, or vegan, whatever, as all those trends have gone up and, and protein goes down and, and red meat goes down and all that, um, there's plenty of evidence to show that, that, that obesity is tied to the eating of complex carbohydrates and grains and all those things. Anyway, all that to say, you got to decide for yourself. I'm just telling you what I have seen is and what I've experienced in my own, in my own person and what this research is indicating is, uh, for me, I need high protein. I eat a lot of eggs, a lot of meat um, of all kinds. You know, nothing like a great steak and some asparagus or something. A lot of that, uh, low carbs and, and healthy fats, and I feel better than ever. So whatever route you choose, let me just encourage you to do some, some experimentation as well as some study and see if your nutrition impacts how you feel. And remember, the goal of all of this to take care of our outer body is so that we can be more effective in everything we do as men. All right, so now we come to the shepherd's portion of episode 56, and we're going to continue our walk through the book of Titus. This is a, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Titus, and he had told Titus that uh, wherever he goes, he's to appoint elders, and uh, I call this segment the shepherd segment because I want to help us as pastors and elders become stronger pastors and elders and continue to recruit and train more pastors and elders because the health of the church is entirely dependent on strong leaders. And we have to give the appropriate attention to raising up strong leaders. So we looked last week at uh, verse 6 of Titus chapter 1. Today we're going to look at chapter, um, uh, chapter 1 verse 7, where it says, The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. So lots of knots. These are lots of things the, the potential elder, uh, or current elder for that matter, must not be. Uh, so it, there, it begins with the, the broad, all-inclusive statement, above reproach. And we talked about that last week because he said it in verse 6 as well. Above reproach means uh, there's no outstanding sin that somebody can point to and say, hey, this guy is guilty of such and such. Um, if, if anybody, if any onlooker, if, the, if his neighbor or coworker can, can say, hey, this guy's involved in this sin, um, then the guy is not fit for eldership because he, he should be the kind of man that there's no ongoing stuff that someone can look at and say, uh, he's, he's uh, failing to, to do the right thing there. So after uh, being above reproach as God's steward, uh, he says, um, not self-willed. Uh, not selfish, not uh, not the kind of person who's doing everything that he does for his uh, for his own purposes and own gain all the time. Uh, this is this is someone who. Well, let me just. Uh, um, opening up my computer real quick here to pull up the uh, the Greek word to, to double check what this is here. Um, not self-willed is the word. Uh, um, arrogant kind of fits along the lines, um, but it's someone who is, who is who's driven basically all about himself. And we know people like that. Uh, there are men in our congregations who, uh, yeah, they, they may be effective in getting things done. They may be successful, 
but they are driven more than anything else about themselves. They love to talk about themselves. They love to name drop. They love to point out all their accomplishments. Uh, you know, they're, they're, there's the kind of guy who is exceedingly successful and everybody knows it, but it's because of the fruit of his work and people can see it. And others are pointing out saying, man, did you recognize how, uh, how great a leader John is or, or how diligent John is or whatever? But then there are guys who show up and say, hey, look at me, look at me, look all that I have done. And that's the kind of person that is not fit to be a shepherd uh, of God's sheep. Uh, He says, not quick-tempered. And you can't know this unless you're around somebody. But how do they handle it when things don't go their way? Uh, How do they handle when their wife or their children uh, don't obey them immediately? Or when anybody does things they don't like? Uh, are they quick to to lash out to say harsh things? Um, does their does does their face turn red and their you know smoke comes out their ears and they're about ready to explode even if they don't let it out? You can tell it's taking every ounce of uh, self will they can they can muster to uh, to not just explode. Um, as an elder, you're going to constantly have people contradicting you, challenging you, disagreeing with you calling you out, um, uh, telling you what they don't like about the decisions you've made, what they think you ought to do that you're not doing, all that kind of stuff. It just happens all the time in leadership. That's what we do is we, we, we deal with people who express their opinions very freely. You can't be the kind of person who will lose your temper when that happens. And so you have to be checking out these guys and see uh, whether or not they, they uh, have patience and grace when contradicted. Uh, not addicted to wine. Uh, it doesn't say you can't have any wine, just not be addicted. And, uh, and this is so important in, in our day um, when, uh, you know, especially the younger guys uh, love beer, IPAs and, and all that and home brews. Um, you know, there's nothing sinful about having a beer or two uh, for celebration and when you get together and that kind of thing. But can you say no? Can the guy say no? Does he have wine every day with dinner uh, and more than a glass? Uh, does he have you know several beers every day? Is he is he addicted such that he can't watch a football game? He can't have a barbecue. He can't hang out on the weekends without uh, you know six beers. That kind of thing. Um, we just have to be careful with it's that or any other controlled substance, where marijuana um, and illegal drugs, of course, uh, are are a problem for lots of reasons. But we have to get to know these guys uh, well enough to to know. Um, can they deny themselves alcohol without any impact uh, on their on their lives? Um, so we that's just part of what we need to do. You need to ask the hard questions and also realize people will lie to you. Um, I've had it happen where uh, uh, a potential elder lied straight to me, telling me he was not addicted to wine, and turned out later on he he was. Um, so uh, you know, as far as we can tell. There's a there's a limit, and if the family won't won't share what's going on that they see, then uh, and by the way, we do. I do ask the wife and children of of men, uh, does your does does he exhibit these character qualities? Is he addicted to wine and that kind of thing? Because I want the the family input on uh, on what they observe. So that's part of uh, the qualification process is is seeing if they can uh, can enjoy uh, a beer or two, but not be excessive. Uh, not pugnacious. Ooh, that's a good word. Don't we love that? Pugnacious. I like to say that word. Uh, most people don't even know what it means. Uh, pugnacious means to 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 stir up trouble. Uh, pug, a pugnacious person who is a person who loves to fight. 
Um, uh, think especially in the realm of theology. Uh, now, it extends beyond that, if you've, but for our purposes, think, think about that for a moment. Uh, a guy you're considering to be an elder, is he looking to find every dispensationalist he can to, to tell that guy he's wrong? Or is he going around, you know, mocking the covenant theologians and, and maybe mocking them about the Sabbath or something and letting them have it just because just he likes to fight? Uh, now, again, we're teachers, and uh, where we can improve someone's understanding of the Bible, we should, and we have to be willing to stand and contend with, uh, with naysayers and with uh, opponents and that kind of thing. But you know the difference between the guy who's willing to engage in battle because it's necessary and right, and the guy who loves the battle. He loves to fight. He loves to pick fights. Um, wherever he goes, he doesn't leave peace, and he doesn't. Uh, he's not received as gentle and kind, uh, even where he disagrees, but he's received as the, the, the fighter, the bully, the uh, provocative kind of guy. It's not going to make a good elder. He is going to cause conflict wherever he goes. Again, we're gonna, you, as an elder, you have plenty of conflict. You don't need to go looking for it. It comes looking for you. Uh, what you don't want are shepherds who are out constantly stirring up that kind of trouble. So whether it's about theology or about politics or about um, just anything in life, you don't want guys who are intentionally trying to stir things up. Now, again, there is a place for sarcasm, for satire uh, as, a, as a strategy Jesus used it, Paul used it, that kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. And, we're, and, and, and there's nowhere in the scripture we're told to be nice. The nice guy is not a Christian, Christian virtue. Weakness is not a Christian virtue. We need to know the difference between someone who goes and picks fights because he likes fighting and the guy who is trying to persuade people of the truth and that causes a fight. Jesus caused fights all over the place. But he didn't do it because he likes to fight. So we've got to watch out for the pugnacious men and, uh, and not bring them onto the board. Uh, not fond of sordid gain. Uh, again, this doesn't mean that all people over a certain income are ruled out of eldership. Uh, it means they don't love money. Uh, they, we've got some very wealthy men on our board. Uh, but these men are generous and they don't talk about their money, and they use their money as just another means God has given them to be a blessing to others, to, to build God's kingdom. Uh, yes, they enjoy life. They enjoy God's blessing to them, um, but they are not seeking money as an end in itself. And, uh, and we have to watch out for that in our day. Again, we can be drawn to the successful men as the world de- defines success. We can be drawn to those who have a lot of money and think, oh, we want to get them on the board because they'll give more and they'll draw more people like them who will give more. And then we can build our buildings and all those things. Uh, nope, that, is, that does not make someone fit for an elder just because they're rich. And certainly if they love being rich, if they long to be rich, if they are striving to be rich, uh, then they are not fit to be uh, an elder. Again, I want to qualify, if they are rich, that does not disqualify them. It's what do they do with their money and what is their heart attitude toward it. So as you continue on in, in January uh, of this year, I, I've challenged you before. If you are an elder or pastor, pick a couple of men in your church who fit these qualifications or who may fit these qualifications or who look like they're on the trajectory to fit these qualifications. Uh, take them out to lunch, invite them over, study these things, get, get a couple books that we recommended. But 
draw some men to the elder board this year. Train them, prepare them, strengthen your church by finding good qualified men who can lead effectively and, uh, and let's build the kingdom of Christ in our churches. All right, that wraps up episode 56. Thanks for coming along with me. Uh, again, I ask you to, to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already do that. Uh, share it with any anybody you think would be uh, helped by it. Uh, love to receive some ratings and reviews on iTunes. You can follow me at Doug Gooden on Twitter, D-O-U-G-G-O-O-D-I-N. And uh, if you haven't seen our free book giveaway, and this is, this is not the same one that I talked about earlier with respect to lifting weights. This is one for everybody. Uh, if you haven't seen our um, our free book of a way, like Cross Crown Ministries on Facebook, and you will find the information there and uh, learn how you can get a free book from the Cross to Crown catalog in the month of January. That's it for uh, this week. Until next time, I urge you to be intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things. Mm-hmm.